Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. Two previous episodes of this podcast, episodes 19 and 20, focused on implicit bias. In each episode, I interviewed six guests, that was one journalist and five psychologists, all of whom have thought about and written about issues that are either in, or at least loosely related to, implicit social cognition. I had a lot of fun making those episodes, and I learned a lot, and they have been the most downloaded episodes of the podcast, so clearly some of you found some value in them as well. I'm pleased to return to the issue of implicit bias in this episode, which features my conversation with a law professor who's writing about implicit bias I only recently encountered, but it has been influential of my thinking. In general, I can learn a lot from colleagues in my field, and it's sometimes tempting to talk primarily, or even exclusively, to colleagues in the field. Since we often share many working assumptions, and we have significant overlapping background knowledge, but I know that I also benefit from talking to people from outside of social psychology, but who have thoughtful opinions about the field. I actually think that engaging with outsiders' perspectives is the only way to identify the limits of what we're up to in the field. If you feel similarly, then this episode is for you. I'm going to share my conversation with Jonathan Kahn. Kahn is the James E. Kelly Chair in Tort Law at the Mitchell Hamline School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota. He earned his law degree at Cal Berkeley and his Ph.D. in History at Cornell. When I read his book, Race on the Brain, I knew I wanted to talk to him, and I feel fortunate that he spoke to me recently. I feature our conversation in this episode, titled Mission Creep. I actually went back and forth um, between the JD and the history degree, um, always trying to find a balance, I guess, between active and contemplative lives. So I started out the PhD. Um, I did my uh, orals three years at Cornell, did my orals, started the dissertation, and started going stir-crazy in Ithaca and decided to go to law school because going back and forth, I'd always been um, more of a sort of politically active kind of person. So I went to law school uh, in Berkeley, and I practiced law for two years in D.C. I went to a firm there to actually do work on desegregation law and school desegregation, and then found I missed the luxury of actually thinking about things more deeply and went back and completed the Ph.D. Well, I first uh, came across one piece of your work last winter semester when I was a part of a reading group here at the college where I teach uh, at Bates College, and we read your book, Race on the Brain. For those listeners who are not already familiar with the book, could you briefly tell us the origin story of that book? Well, I actually came to the book um, through my previous book, which was actually a book called Race on, um, in a Bottle, um, the yeah. sense of theme here, yeah. which was about the, um, the first um, drug that was ever approved by the FDA with a race-specific indication, meaning that it was approved 
to treat heart failure in a black patient. And the story of that book was about looking at how the drug was uh, sort of racialized, created as a racial drug, really as much if not more through considerations of law and commerce than through actual um, medical indication. Um, and then as I, after I finished that up, I was exploring issues of neuroscience and race, and it led me to this study um, that was conducted in, um, uh, at Oxford by, kind of, uh, by a bioethicist there, that was looking at the effects of giving a pill, uh, propranolol, which is a beta blocker for which treats hypertension and things of that sort, yeah. giving people a pill and having them take this thing called the implicit association test, which uh, is purported to measure your unconscious or implicit bias. And he said, oh, well, you give people this pill, and lo and behold, uh, they show less bias. And um, I thought, this is interesting. It was sort of this natural follow-up where I had just done this book on a pill that was developed for a specific race, and here is now a, a guy talking about a pill for racism. And so we're sort of moving from this concern about looking at how uh, this, this pill that I've been looking at sort of biologized race and turned race into a biological category in very problematic ways. And here is somebody talking about, well, racism is something biological, and so it's about biolo biologizing racism as opposed to race. And I started seeing how the implicit association test and the concept of implicit bias had really um, gained terrific traction in uh, just in American discourse, just general discussions of race and racism in particular. Lester, I think implicit bias is a problem for everyone, not just police. I think, unfortunately, too many of us in our great country um, jump to conclusions about each other. And therefore, I think we need all of us to be asking hard questions about... And I started seeing how the implicit association test and the concept of implicit bias had really um, uh, gained terrific traction in uh, just in American discourse, just general discussions of race and racism, in particular in certain um, influential legal circles where people were trying to use this um, this science to develop new um, arguments about law and policy. And so then I just sort of ex started exploring the implications of all of that. So I am a social psychologist, and I've done a bit of work on implicit bias. And I'll be frank, I find it really interesting, and I've been really excited about it, both for theoretical reasons, but also for practical reasons. As a social psychologist interested in issues of discrimination and social justice. To be, to be quite frank, as an African American, I have a, a personal and as a member of, of that social category, a collective stake in understanding the roots of group-based hierarchy and social uh, injustice. And so I've been really excited about implicit bias as an area of study that could potentially shed light on these vexing social problems, and I'm not alone. I think a lot of people who come mm -hmm. to the study of that um, set of issues are similarly motivated. And so reading your book, frankly, was a, a bracing and a jarring experience for me. And I want to I go back to something early in the book, or go to something early in the book, which you say that uh, there are a number of ways in which the emergence of implicit bias as 
a dominant story or a master narrative of race relations has led to some problems. And one of those problems you suggest is, quote, the reinforcement of the logic of conservative equal protection jurisprudence that embraces a colorblind ideal, denies the importance of history, and holds up diversity as the sole rationale for affirmative action, end quote. There's a lot there. I want to ask you to unpack part of it. And I want to ask you first to explain how it is that you think that the emergence of an implicit bias master narrative as a, as a dominant story of race, race relations, how does that promote colorblindness as an ideal? Well, in a sense, the very premise of the implicit association test, which is, is not the only thing that measures implicit bias, but it's really the most, most prominent test yep. and um, most widely known. It's, been, it's, it's an easy test you can take on your computer. Literally, I think it's over 20 million people have now taken it at the Project Implicit website, and there are other sites that use it as, uh, you know, versions of it as well. Um, and it's for, for the, there are all sorts of implicit association tests. You can take it, a race IAT, which is sort of like looking at black faces or white faces. You can do a gender, you can do age, you can do height, you can do it on any sort of paired group, right? So, um, so the thing is, the, the premise of a race IAT basically, and especially the way it's actually discussed in the literature, is that um, you are biased, right, if you see a white face differently from a black face, in mm-hmm. a sense, right? If you, if you have different associations with it. And so the idea is um, that, you know, and, and this, the, the underlying concern is, like, it's not good to be biased, right? That's the, the uh, sort of the implicit message of the implicit bias test is you don't want to be biased. So, so the idea is that you are biased if, in a sense, you see color, right? So the idea is um, you are not biased if you respond to a black face the same way you respond to a white face, meaning you're not biased if you are, in effect, colorblind. And as with critiques of colorblindness, also as these results are discussed, they're actually based on an implicit white norm, because usually the way the results are presented are people respond to black faces differently than they do from white faces, right? Not the other way around. So yeah. the idea is that sort of your response to the white face is the norm, and then the extent to which your response to a black face is different, it is deviating from that norm. And so that's, that's the first idea of colorblindness, is that it's telling you, and especially it's taken up by certain legal scholars, they're essentially telling you that you should respond to white faces the same as black faces or vice versa, right? So you should be colorblind. I I think that, I mean, that all makes sense, but I think that there's a way in which thinking about the problem that way has a lot of appeal in, in part because it, I think it makes the problems of, of group-based hierarchy seem more tractable than they otherwise might. So when you consider, for example, Charles Lawrence, who's a scholar whom you quoted a couple at several points in the book. And Charles uh, Lawrence, you quote as saying, racism's harm is greater than the biased actions of individuals. End quote. And you go on to say that um, his cultural meaning task, test doesn't ask whether bias infects the decisions of the individual actors in the way that this colorblind perspective that you're describing uh, m- might might tend to 
conceptualized bias. Rather, quote, it demonstrates the continuing presence of racist belief in the larger society, and it finds the harm of racism in the pervasive effects of shared racist ideology. And I get all that. That makes a lot of sense. But as I wrote in the margin, when I read about a cultural meaning test rejecting the premise that it's individual actions that matter and finding the harm and the pervasive effects of shared racist ideology, I thought that makes sense. But how do you attack that problem? How do you make such a problem manageable? So, so what's your reaction to the idea that, yeah, yeah if we reject this uh, approach that is in, that's sort of uh, based uh, in this implicit bias narrative that says it's about individual actions, how do we make the problem of addressing group-based hierarchy manageable? You know, I think that's a really good question. And so, um, and, I, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting, right, and important that you use the word reject this approach, because I very much do not want to sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater yeah. of the IAT. And so, I, too, find um, the whole area of the science of implicit so- social cognition really fascinating, really important, and in many respects, uh, very productive, right, and very useful. Um, but part of it, um, uh, part, in some ways, the central thesis of my book, or one of, one of the main theses of my book, can be sort of summed up in a cliche, right, as, as I suppose any book thesis should be, um, which is a place for everything and everything in its place. Mm-hmm. And I feel that um, the science of implicit social cognition has a lot to offer in deepening and broadening understandings of the way this very real phenomenon known as implicit bias works, right? And it can be used to address precisely some of the, the issues that, that, um, uh, that you were sort of expressing concern about at, at a more sort of micro level, right, sort of at the more manageable level. Um, the concern I have is um, the way it's kind of um, uh, kind of slopped over the edges of its sort of like you know appropriate sphere of influence into other areas, or not even that it hasn't, but that people have appropriated it to areas where it's doing more work than it can or should do. Um, and, and, and one example of this that just comes to mind um, is, for example, and, and this is where it can be a sort of again kind of kind of a sort of law of unintended consequences, um, you know, um, where uh, people sort of don't appreciate sort of moving to this default setting of, um, of implicit bias can actually do more harm than good in some situations. And, for example, you know, earlier this year, the whole um, brouhaha around the Starbucks yep. um, incident, right, where these two black guys come sit at a Starbucks and uh, a white female manager goes up and asks them if they're going to get coffee and they say, we're waiting for a third person. And within two minutes, she calls the cops on them. Yep. Right? And the cops come and they take them away. And Starbucks responded to that very, you know, very admirably in some respects, saying we're closing down our stores for an afternoon of what? Implicit bias training. Right? And on the one hand, more power to Starbucks. But on the other hand, that is not that incident and incidents like it, like this proliferation of 911 calling, those are not incidents of implicit bias, right? From where I stand, those are examples of racism, right? Implicit bias is 
the way your mind works at a precognitive or preconscious level, it might manifest itself in something like, oh, if a white person comes into a room and a black person is sitting on a bench, they will sit down on that bench further away from that black person than if that person were than if it were a white person. Or they will make eye contact less frequently or smile less frequently, that sort of thing. Um, you know, that's a sort of, you know, these are things that you're not aware of happening. That was not what was happening in Starbucks. Like, she sees these guys. She goes up to these guys. She talks to these guys. She calls the police, right? She talks to the police. That's all extremely conscious. But we call it implicit bias because nobody thinks it's racism, right? So if we're not calling it racism, it must be implicit bias. But the problem is nobody ever thinks they're a racist, right? David Duke doesn't think he's a racist. He's just saying, oh, white people should be proud of themselves just like black people are. So there's no racism. And this is part of, so the, the default to implicit bias, to explain too many things by it, obscures our ability to sort of call out racism when it's there. And to the extent that we do that, what we end up doing is adopting these sort of um, um, implicit bias, diversity management approaches to ameliorating the problem that are really aimed at just making people, you know, primarily white people, feel better about themselves right. rather than holding people accountable for dialing 911, creating situations where black lives literally are put at risk, right? And it's not addressing issues of power or accountability. It's about saying, oh, you know, let's, let's do some implicit bias training so that you feel better about yourself. Um, and it's kind of uh, seeking racial justice on the cheap, as it were. Um, which isn't to say that implicit bias training shouldn't happen, but it should happen, it shouldn't happen as a response to issues of racism, right? Well, and um, if, if I understood you in the book, I, I hear you also making the point that an inordinate focus on implicit bias can draw attention away from not just racism in individuals, but racism that's baked into institutions and into power structures. A am I right about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And although I, you know, I want to be a little careful about that. I mean, you know, people commonly invoke issues of structural or institutional racism, which is every bit as real and significant as implicit bias is. And again, so to the extent that you're focusing, what implicit bias does is it directs our attention to the individual, you know, the psyche of the individual, right? It's not sort of addressing um, larger questions of um, uh, historically embedded structures of inequality that, um, and sort of the persisting legacy, right, of, of historically racist practices. Um, so it leads us to think that, um, uh, in particular, for instance, um, this is sort of related but a little distinct, but the issue that um, along with history, along with structures and institutions, that history doesn't matter, right? That all that matters is what's going on in the brain of the individual person at this moment in time when they are exercising their implicit bias or clicking a key on a computer and taking the implicit association test. And that, that, um, that what matters is sort of uh, implicit bias in the here and now. And it directs our attention not only away from appreciating the, the power of structures and institutions, which, again, to their credit, many social psychologists understand, right, that these institutions and structures shape 
the way in which those implicit biases are become manifest in individual psyches. I mean, they 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 acknowledge. I mean, you know, the good ones acknowledge that, but um, but also um, it's the idea that that the, the the legacy of of actual past racist policies and practices um, of you know not just Jim Crow. Um, but redlining, yep. um, limiting access to things like the GI Bill, um, more recently things like the way racial profiling happens in policing, those are all you know very conscious and deliberate policies that have nothing to do with unconscious bias, and they have really profound impacts on sort of the lived experience of people of color on an everyday basis. And, and, and you could argue that when you consider something like the GI Bill, Given the way in which it has led to wealth generation, but wealth generation disproportionately among white Americans rather than black Americans, you could argue that that's an example of racism operating at at an institutional level um, exclusively and and not mediated by individual actions. And I say that because I've spoken mm-hmm. to some social psychologists who have suggested that Yes, institutions matter, but a lot of their effects are mediated through individuals' biases. So perhaps, and here I'm extrapolating a bit, but perhaps mm-hmm. if we can measure their propensity or predict their propensity toward individual bias with a measure like the IAT, that can be a proxy for these in, these institutional level processes. But but would you agree that there are effects of institutional processes that are not mediated through individual actions that that, that are important? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is that that is sort of how the idea of how institutional racism is supposed to work, right? That you um, that you have simple certain measures that are premised on, you know, X, Y, or Z thing. You know, it could be you know something as simple as um, again, yeah, this is a historical example, but I'm a historian. But you know, like a literacy test, right? To vote, like you can only vote um, if you can read, um, and so that seems totally race blind, but if um you know if this is if we're talking about the 1870s 1880s 1890s um well you know it was illegal right to educate black people you know to educate slaves or free blacks in the south and so they can't read and so you administer that totally new race neutral criterion um but it's clear you know in you know in administering that you don't have to be implicitly biased to administer it but it clearly is uh you know uh perpetuating uh, um, the what was a race conscious policy of forbidding the education of black people right so that you know that's just sort of one example that immediately comes to mind so I think that absolutely can happen the flip side of that though is um, uh, it, it goes to a, a sense of you know a book by uh, sociologist Edward Bonilla Silva um, racism without racists yep. which is a great book but the very title actually and it's about that issue right about how people in some ways, perpetuate uh, racial uh, um, injustice or, or racist attitudes or whatever without sort of consciously being racist. But I do think one of the things that implicit bias kind of lets us, when I say us, white people, you know, white guy, um, off the hook for is essentially, I mean, what, for want of a better word, complicity, right? Complicity in our own privilege and failure to recognize that, you know, the way, you know, the, the historically accrued privileges that white people have in this country as a group. You know, not, you know, they're individual white people who have experienced great hardship and difficulty, and I totally accept that. But um, realizing part of this is a failure to acknowledge 
you know, institutional racism can work without actual conscious racism. But the failure to acknowledge or to be aware of or to simply uh, willfully blind yourself to that reality is, I would argue, itself a, a kind of racism. It might not make you a racist per se, but sort of it's a kind of luxury, right, that people of color don't have to sort of be blind to that. Um, most prominent among people who I put in that camp are people like Chief Justice Roberts, yep. um, who say things like in the Shelby versus Holder case, which gutted the voting rights case, say, we, you know, essentially, we don't need the Voting Rights Act anymore because, quote, things have changed. Yep. And that sounds very non-racist, um, but I would say to the contrary, right? It's a willful blinding oneself to the significance of the ongoing reality and presence of race and race, race, race issues and racism in the country. Hey folks, this is Michael, and I'm going to get back to the episode in about 71 seconds, but for now, I wanted to jump in to extend a note of gratitude to a very special subset of listeners, and that is listeners who support Tatter at Patreon. As you might know, Patreon is a website where people who value something, whether it's in the visual arts or music or podcasting or elsewhere, and who want to offer financial support to the creator of that content, can do so. In the case of Tatter, once a month, some of you are doing the equivalent online of buying me a cup of coffee or a beer, and some of you are actually buying me a very nice beer once a month, and I'm deeply grateful for your support. It means a lot to me. If you're not yet a supporter, but you're curious, if you want to learn more about this, or at least about Patreon in general, go to patreon.com slash tatter. But if you are a current student where I teach, do not support tatter. For ethical reasons, I cannot accept your support. But for everyone else, come on in, the water's fine. And with that, coming in pretty close to 71 seconds, actually, let's get back to the episode. So sort of in a nutshell, the idea of uh, anti-classification is, is this ideal of a colorblind constitution that, um, that we simply shouldn't class, that any classification by race is per se bad, right? The anti-subordinationists are saying, no, we have to be more nuanced than that and be able to distinguish between good and bad uses of race, and that you, when race is used to subordinate one group to another, to render them somehow less than human, that's what we need to be concerned about, right? And so the difference is, for instance, then, an anti-classification person would have a problem with affirmative action because it uses race, which per se would be bad. An anti-subordinationist would say, no, using race in affirmative action is okay because it's not sending a message that white people are inferior to black people. It's sending a message that we need to make some sort of, you know, essentially repair for the historical discrimination against black people, and that's not telling anybody that they are better or worse than anybody else. So, so when Chief Justice Roberts says the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, he's aligning himself with anti-classificationism. Absolutely, and um, and you know, Sotomayor, in a sort of repost to that, in a later opinion, was saying, you know, the way to you know the way to um, deal with race is to sort of I can't remember the exact quote, but to deal with to to confront it expressly. And directly, right? That's how, how we have to deal with race. And so she would be more anti-subordinationist. 
So, so is it fair to say that you aligned yourself more with the anti-subordination tradition of 14th Amendment jurisprudence rather than anti-classificationist? Yes, that would be fair to say. Although I also, I really align myself with people uh, like Reva Siegel, a uh, law professor at Yale, who, who is definitely, I would say, an anti-subordinationist to the extent that there is one, a, a term like that, but who says that the, you know, those two traditions are actually not as clearly distinct as right. a lot of people would say, right? They're, they're sort of interwoven, but I'm, I'm definitely much more, cons- you know, when I, for instance, going back to a case like Brown versus Board of Education, where they say separate but equal schools are inherently unequal, right? To me, when I read that opinion in whole, right, what it's saying is it's unequal because of the feeling of inferiority it generates in black children, right, because of the stigma, because it's, it tells people they're less than human. So is the implicit bias research tradition, if it's fair to characterize that as a as an entity, is it anti-classificationist? Well, I mean, this is one of the ironies of it. I mean, I know a lot of the legal scholars who are trying to make use of this this science, I think would probably put themselves fairly squarely in the anti-subordination class. Yep. Um, and indeed, they would say, um, uh, this is a way to sort of, using this science as a way to kind of revivify um, equal protection law and anti-affirmative, and affirmative action law in a way that, um, have, because it sort of hit a dead end with the conservative Supreme Court, we need some new tool to further racial justice. And I feel like, like they feel that this is a good tool to further racial justice. And again, I would say in measured doses, absolutely. But it's being presented as kind of like, like this magic bullet. And so the thing is, the implicit logic of the way they're presenting arguments reinforces a lot of the conservative jurisprudence that is anti-classification, because they're saying things like, history doesn't matter. That's what the anti-classificationists say, right? They're saying things like, one should respond, you know, that the IAT is saying things like, one should respond to a black face the way you respond to a white face. It's colorblindness, right? That, that the richness and complexity of your identity doesn't matter. Right, and so, so it's this, it's this tension and this irony that they're trying to, I mean, I, I talk about it as sort of a kind of, they're trying to do this kind of legal jujitsu, where they're trying to take the terms that the conservative jurisprudence uses to stifle racial progress and try to use those terms against it to further racial progress. So in that, you know, you know more power to them, we're all in the same camp on, on the goal. My concern is that they actually have unwittingly in fostering, again, what I call this master narrative, actually, in the long run, um, undermined broader attempts to address race and racism. Um, undermine their own cause, I would say. And my cause. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Jonathan Kahn for taking the time to talk with me. Again, he's the author of Race on the Brain, which I can't recommend enough, especially for my fellow social psychologists. Check out tatter.fireside.fm and go to the page for this episode for links to information about Khan, the book, and more. As always, to offer feedback on this or any episode, use Twitter. The handle is at 
tatter underscore rags. You can also go to iTunes and post a review. Your feedback is valued because it helps me do this podcast better. In any case, thanks for listening and be well.